Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. You know, last week we sang a, a twist on a traditional Christmas carol. Instead of, O come all ye faithful, we sang, O come all ye unfaithful. I don't know if you remember that. But the idea of this rewritten carol was to envision the coming of Christ as good news, not just to the faithful, but to the unfaithful, to the weary, to the poor, to the broken, the sick, the sorrowful. And indeed, the coming of Christ, it, it, it's incredible how, how God, at, at the coming of his, his son into the world, God, through his sovereign plan, chose to surround his son with just these sorts of folks. Right? He surrounded him with, with a poor mom and adopted dad. He announced his birth to filthy, dirty shepherds, lowly shepherds wasn't the political and religious leaders of the day who were greeting Christ into the world. They missed his birth, and if they had, hadn't missed it, they probably would have tried to kill him, particularly the king. And yet, Gentile astrologers, the magi, Gentile magicians from the east came, called, led out by God to, to fall at the feet of the Christ child and to offer him gifts and to worship him. Th this is the call of the gospel to the unfaithful. There's room at the manger for you. So indeed, the, the coming of the gospel is good news to the unfaithful. We talked about that a little bit last week. For the unfaithful who have ears to hear and eyes to see the Christ. But I don't want you to get the impression that it's merely for those who are unfaithful and that, that there weren't somehow faithful ones in Israel at the coming of Christ who were excited to see Jesus come because that's, that's not the case. There were. The gospel is for the faithful too. In fact, the traditional hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful, says it well, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem, come and behold him, born the king of angels, O come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. You know, for the faithful in Israel, the coming of Christ had been a long wait, a long wait, hundreds and hundreds thousands of years, really. And most of the faithful through the history of time to this point had died in their faith, in their hope. Right? Just as, as Hebrews chapter 11, you know Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, so to speak, the long list of the faithful through the ages? The whole point of that chapter, you see it at the very last verse of Hebrews chapter 11, author says at the very end of that chapter, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Right? That's the point of faith. <laughs> the righteous shall live by faith. 
It's a matter of fact that God's timetable is different from our timetable. It's a, it, it's a matter of fact that God's idea of progress is different than our idea of progress. We live in an age where the information we want and need is, is literally at our fingertips. We live in an age of instant gratification, of blistering speeds and constant distractions. We live in a results-driven age where we want solutions and we want them at warp speed or else. But what if God has a, a much longer process in mind? What if in God's patience, he wants you to watch and to wait and to have faith? So much of being numbered among the faithful is just that, walking by faith as you watch and wait on the Lord. At the coming of Christ into the world, we get to see two faithful watchers and waiters here in this passage, Simeon and Anna. And really, we know so little about them except for what we read here in, in this passage. The opening details to this story unfold what would have normally been rather routine details of faithful obedience to God's law. First, we see here that Christ was circumcised on the eighth day. If you look at verse 21, it says, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You know, this, this bloody, painful little surgery that was performed on Christ when he was barely a week old, it identified him fully with his people. It identified him as a child of Abraham, as a child of the covenant. And really, it was the first steps in him fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf. Christ fully identified with those he came to save. He submitted himself to his own law. Think about that. The law of circumcision was a law that God himself had given. He entered into the world and submitted himself to that. He put himself under the law. When you, when you accept circumcision as a, as a little baby in the nation of Israel, you are uh, identifying as, an, as a child of Abraham, a child of the covenant, and Christ willingly did that. Put himself under the law to fulfill and save us from the penalty of that law. I could have preached a whole sermon on this point, but I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. But I think the one thing I want you to notice is that Mary and Joseph really obey the Lord through these routine acts of faithful covenant obedience to the Lord. The first one here, they had Christ circumcised according to the law on the eighth day. Secondly, we see Christ was officially named Jesus here in verse 21 as well. Again, a routine thing. All parents name their children, right? But in this instance, Mary and Joseph didn't name the child according to their will, but according to God's will. They had both received these instructions from the Lord through an angelic messenger, through the angel Gabriel. 
And you know, it's the father's prerogative to name their child, right? It's the parent's prerogative, really, but the ultimately the father's, especially in Israel in this day. And I think it's just so cool how God the Father was very particular in the fact that he wanted his son to be named Jesus. Right? Do you know what the name Jesus means? It literally means God saves, the Lord saves. I mean, he could have named him God's gonna get you. Right? Judgment's coming. But he didn't. He sent his son into the world and named him, was very particular about him being named the Lord is salvation. The Lord saves. So that's why God sent his son into the world. And not only does the name Jesus itself have that meaning built into it that Yahweh saves, but sort of beneath that, the English of this, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Hebrew form of Jesus' name. It's Yeshua, which in other places in the Bible, is translated as Joshua. Yeshua, Joshua. You can hear that, right? Well, guess who, the, who Joshua was in the Old Testament? He was the one who brought God's people into the promised land. It wasn't Moses, right? It wasn't Moses in, in the law that he brought that brought that brought the children of Israel into the promised land. In fact, Moses was kept out of the promised land because of one bad day. That's the way the law of God is in its holiness. No, they needed, they needed someone else to bring them into the promised land. It was Joshua who brought them in. And I, I think it's no accident that God picked this name for his son, the deliverer, the one who brings us, his people, into the promised land. And so Mary and Joseph were faithful to obey God's directions in this. They had him circumcised. They named him according to the Lord's word. Thirdly, Mary obediently followed the purity laws. Now this is another place where I could go off on a rabbit trail. Uh, this would be an interesting thing to pursue and preach a sermon on someday. The laws of Moses details how a woman is made ceremonially unclean by the flow of her blood at ch childbirth. This is just so strange to our modern ears. <laughs> but the, suffice it to say, there's a whole host of, of ways in the Old Testament that someone could be declared ceremonially unclean, and it was a part of God's plan for communicating to his people that you couldn't just approach him in any old way. Right? And one of these ways was after a childbirth and there was the flow of blood that, that made the woman ceremoni ceremonially unclean. And fortunately, God tells how a, an unclean person can be made clean. Right? The law tells how Mary can be purified from having given birth. And you can read all about that in Leviticus chapter 12. It's just a short little chapter I would commend that to you for your own study this week as you think about these things. Le Leviticus chapter 12 it, it explains why Mary had to go through this postpartum purity uh, ritual. Now, if a woman gave birth to a male child, she was to come to the temple after 33 days and offer up a burnt offering of a year-old lamb and a sin offering of either a turtle dove or a pigeon. That's what the law said. 
However, if you were poor, instead of bringing a year-old lamb for the burnt offering, which was really quite costly when you think about it, you could bring a pair of turtle doves or pigeons instead. Well, guess what Mary and Joseph brought? The text tells us that they brought the offering that was prescribed for the poor. So we learn from this that Mary and Joseph were poor. We might have suspected it from other things, but we know here from reading this that they were indeed very poor. Kent Hughes said about this that Mary and Joseph's humble offering was a public declaration of, of their poverty. Jesus was born into poverty. Not even being able to spare a little, a little lamb for their purification offering. But although Mary and Joseph were poor, we see here that they were obedient, right? And then fourthly, we see that that they came to the temple this day in order to present Christ at the temple, right? This is, again, another act of routine covenantal obedience according to God's law due to the Passover in Egypt when God brought his children out of Egypt and delivered them out into the wilderness and then ultimately to the promised land. The way that God brought that about was he, he sent the death angel out, right, to, uh, to take the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But God passed over the children of Israel. But it, it Their freedom then came at the cost of the firstborn of Egypt. So the Lord told them in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. It's to remember what the Lord did for them in passing over them and delivering them. And and in verse 15 of that chapter of Exodus chapter uh, 13, it it goes on to expand on this, and we learn here that it's, Uh, The firstborn of every animal was to be sacrificed to the Lord, and the firstborn sons were to be redeemed, not sacrificed, right? Many of the pagan cultures around them would would sacrifice their sons and daughters to their their gods. God doesn't do that. He here built in the symbolism of being redeemed, right? They were to redeem their firstborn sons, bring them to the temple, and that's what Mary and Joseph were obediently doing on this day. As I said, all routine acts of obedience. And and these routine acts are significant because they show us that Mary and Joseph's uh, obedience to the law helped Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, as I said, on our behalf. And that in and of itself is is a, a very significant thing. But God made this an even more significant event than just routine faithfulness. He punctuated these things with another sign. In fact, he gave two signs, two living signs that were a generation in the making. I'm speaking, of course, of Simeon and Anna. As Jesus' family is there at the temple obediently fulfilling the law, suddenly an old man named Simeon comes up to them and he scoops Jesus up into his arms. Can you imagine this? You know, you've you're been entrusted with the Christ child and here this stranger, this old, old man comes up and scoops up the Christ child into his arms. 
Who is this guy holding Jesus? Well, Luke tells us three important things about Simeon. First, something about his character. Simeon is a righteous and devout man. That doesn't mean he's self-righteous. For the Bible says that none is righteous, no, not one, and that surely included Simeon. But this is the righteousness of faith. He's righteous and he's devout. Devout literally means to take hold of the good. That's what he, he was that kind of guy. So we learn about his character. We don't know what he looks like, but we know, we know how he behaved. We know what his character was. Secondly, we learn about his hope. Simeon was a man who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. The comfort or consolation of Israel was really just a a well-known expression for the messianic hope. It was the hope that God would one day send the Messiah into the world and deliver them from all their enemies. Simeon had this hope. So he was a man of character. He he, He was a man of hope. And thirdly, we learn what is his strength. The text says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. In fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in conjunction with Simeon three times here. We see that the Holy Spirit was upon him in verse 25. And then in the very next verse, we learn that the Holy Spirit had actually revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he had seen the Christ child with his own eyes. And then finally, in verse 27, we learn that it is in, or I think a better translation, is by the Spirit that Simeon comes to the temple that day. He's a man of the Spirit. And when this, this Simeon, this faithful, righteous, devout man who's been watching and waiting for many years, he's been told he's going to see the Christ child, when he when he comes into the temple that day, compelled by the Holy Spirit, he sees Jesus there. And he can't help himself. He comes up and he, he scoops Jesus up into his arms. And, and he utters these memorable words here, beginning in verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I think these words being uttered by such a man, sort of to Mary and Joseph, must have seemed out of the blue. It, It must have further highlighted the truth of the fact that they had just given birth to the Christ. I mean, here, here they were in possession. It was a, a month into this thing. They'd had Christ now for, Christ was probably about a month old, a little over a month old, and here they were going through these routine acts of obedience. The angels appearing had happened, the shepherds coming, all that had happened. And now here a month later, another sign this very normal-looking child that they're holding and for whom they had just offered a poor man's offering is in fact the Christ. It was punctuated again. 
And Luke says here that Mary and Joseph marveled at what Simeon had said about their son. I mean, can you imagine? But Simeon wasn't done. He then turns his old faded eyes upon them and he blesses them. But it's a, it's a mixed blessing. For Simeon foresees in this moment the conflict that would culminate in the cross. And he foresees the suffering that will come upon Mary as a result. Look at verses 34 and 35. It says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. God had prepared for himself a watching and waiting faithful old man named Simeon to punctuate this day as a sign to the couple, as a sign to all, that this is the Christ. But that's not all. Luke says that at that very hour, an elderly prophetess by the name of Anna comes up to them as well and begins to give thanks to God for Jesus and begins to, to speak to, to all the faithful ones. She could have been singing, Oh, come all ye faithful. Right? Come adore him, Christ the Lord. She, was, she began speaking to all the fellow watchers and waiters. I found the Christ. I've seen the Christ. We actually don't have a, a specific word that Anna ever spoke. Not one single word that she spoke recorded. What we do have recorded and what was really significant about her was this woman's remarkable suffering. Luke tells us that Anna was married to her husband for seven years. From the time she was a virgin to the time that she w- that she was married to him up to seven years. And, a, and after she'd been married to this guy for seven years, her husband passed away. And then from that time forward, she had been alone as a widow. Which really in any age, that would have been, that would have meant a lot of suffering. But it particularly back in ancient times, to be a widow was to suffer. There's no doubt about it. And scholars kind of disagree with one another here about whether this means that this text is saying that, that she was a widow for 84 years after her hu- husband died. So let's say she was a young teenager when she was married and then seven years later would have put her in her early 20s when her husband died. So imagine maybe 22, 23 years old and then 84 years into the future, she would have been over a little over 100 at this point if that's the case. Or it could be saying here that her husband passed away probably when, he, when she was around 22 and now she's 84 years old. Either way, she's, it had been a long time. She had suffered for, a, for many, many years. And yet, look how her suffering didn't drive her away from God but drove her to God. Luke tells us in, in verse 37, that Anna did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She was a a mainstay at the temple. She turned her tears over to God in worship. What a remarkable woman this must have been. What a, a trophy of God's grace. 
So what are we to do with this story? I have five points. Now I know that's more than three, but we're going to get through that, okay? Uh, these are our five brief points about this that we can think about applying to our lives from this story. Really, I think you could find more. First, I want you to consider this. I want you to behold and see, I want you to believe the living signposts prepared for you by the Lord here in this story. You know, so much of what we read in the Gospels is recorded with the simple aim that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's why it was written down. That's, if you want to ask, why did Luke decide to write down this story this, of routine faithfulness? Uh, why did he include this story of Simeon and Anna? Well, the very first answer to that is he wrote it down so that you would believe. All the gospel writers did that. In fact, the, the gospel of John, John at the end of his gospel, that's what he says expressly that you know Jesus did so many signs, you wouldn't be able to write them all down. But these signs, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why, that's why the gospel writers wrote this down. They want you to believe. And, and Luke himself, as he's at the beginning of his gospel, he prefaces it. He's writing this gospel to some man by the name of Theophilus, right, which means literally friend of God. And he says this, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wrote these things down that you would believe. He writes it so that you might have another layer of certainty in the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. God prepared two living souls. Prepared for their, their entire lifetime. 80, maybe 90, maybe 100 years in the making. So on this particular day, this that an old watching and waiting man might come to the temple and see the Christ and declare him to be who he is and, and proclaim this blessing over the family and that an old watching and waiting woman might do the same. This man, told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Christ with his own eyes, he comes to the temple on the very day Jesus was being presented and of all the people there, he picks out this family and this child, and he rejoices over him as the fulfillment of all that God had personally promised to him. He sees this child from Nazareth born to this poor couple, and he's ready to die in peace. What's that all about? It's a sign. It doesn't just happen. It's a whole lifetime in the making. And God sovereignly works it out so that this man, this long, old, watching, waiting, faithful man would be there on that day and that the, the sight of the Christ child would be the fulfillment of his wildest dreams. 
It's our God. He weaves things together. He weaves lives together in this way. And this woman who had suffered for years and years and years and years as a widow, and yet her suffering made her beautiful in the eyes of God as she, as she again and again lifted up her hands in faith. The text says that she came to the temple at that very hour. <laughs> at that very hour. And she encounters the Christ child and his family. And at the sight of Jesus, this unceasing worshiper is overjoyed and begins telling everybody what she's seen. It's no accident, it's no ordinary occurrence. The Gospels are, are stacking up, the stacking up of sign after sign after sign as to why you ought to believe then these two old watchers and waiters were certainly two compelling pictures of a long-awaited hope fulfilled. And that's what Jesus is. He is a long-awaited hope fulfilled. Reminds me of the old hymn, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, Born to Set Thy People Free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in Thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth Thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. I think Simeon could have written that one. But he didn't. Secondly, <coughs> Only those who have welcomed Christ may welcome death. As Simeon at long last sees Christ with his eyes and gets to hold him in his arms, he says to the Lord, I, I really like the old King James version of this verse, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. I really think it had that flavor of permission. Lord, I, I've, seen, I've seen your salvation, Lord. Now let me depart. Let me depart in peace. You know, when you welcome Christ, you can welcome death with peace. I really don't like bumper stickers, but the old bumper sticker came to my mind. No Jesus, no peace. You know, K-N-O-W. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. N-O, Jesus, N-O, peace. The peace that Simeon feels here is, or that comes upon him as he lays his eyes on the Christ child is, is not just merely the, the completion of a life's work. This is the, the peace that passes all understanding that only comes from knowing the Prince of Peace. There is a peace with God. And it's not just a, a peaceful feeling, but it is a, a genuine laying down of arms with the God who made you, right? Because of our sin, we are, enemy, we are at enmity with God. But when you welcome Christ into your life, 
there's a laying down of the arms and there's a re- restoration of that relationship. There is a, a shalom, there is a peace, there's a wholeness in your relationship with the God who made you. And, and there is nothing else on this earth that can compare, nothing. That's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And I don't think Simeon is, is being morbid here. I don't think he needs to be talked down off the bridge. I, I think this is merely the soul of one who's been satisfied with the richest of treasures. You know, Jesus described himself. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a treasure that was buried out in a field and you know, one day someone comes upon it and discovers it and then in joy they go and they sell all that they have to go and purchase that field so they can have that treasure. That's who Jesus is. That's what the kind of moment that Simeon is having here, beholding Jesus. Have you welcomed Jesus in this way? Have you welcomed Jesus in this way? Simeon, in his prophecy here, he rightly proclaims that Jesus is the salvation that God has prepared in the presence of all people. This hasn't been hidden from you. It was prepared in the presence of all people at the center of the world. And, and the message of it has been carried to the ends of the, of the earth. And I'm calling your attention to it today. God gave him, not just as the glory of Israel, as, as their Messiah, he is that, but Simeon rightly says here that he also gave him as a light for revelation to the Gentiles, to the nations, that's you and I. God's light has reached your eyes today if you will have eyes to see it. Thirdly, don't forget he was born to bleed. He was born to bleed. You know, from the tender age of one month old, the baby Jesus had a a leathery old prophet cast over him the shadow of the cross. What do you mean speaking of these things over a little baby? (laughs) You see, Jesus was and is a sign that is opposed. You know, this time of year in particular, people might tolerate the idea of Christ in the manger, right? Uh, That peaceful image of him wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger, and they might sing a a Christmas carol about it and they might enjoy that for what it is if if it gives them a peaceful and joyful feeling around Christmas. But let's not speak of sin, right? Let's not speak of the wrath of God against sinners. That's the whole reason that Jesus came. That's the whole reason for Christmas is that he would ultimately grow up one day and die on the cross for our sins. And so at Christmas time in particular, let's not forget that he came, he was born to bleed and to die for us on the cross. Think of all the spheres in which you live and move and work today and and you know that speaking the name of Jesus, not just in a Christmas carol, but speaking the name of Jesus that speaks of the cross, how taboo that is, right? Let's not speak about that 
or if we do, let's speak about it in hushed tones. Well, Simeon foresaw this conflict between the world and Jesus. He foresaw the way that Jesus would reveal the thoughts of many hearts, and he is still revealing the thoughts of many hearts today. Jesus does that to this day. You bring up the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is going to reveal people's hearts. He has that effect on people. Let me just encourage you, don't remain neutral about Jesus. Don't remain indifferent about him. He wouldn't want you to. And and really to remain indifferent to him is to reject him. It's to reject him. Jesus was born for so much more than just the manger. He was born to bleed, and even as we come to adore him in the manger this Christmas, we should, with Simeon, look ahead from the manger to the cross again. And just as Simeon did, he pointed ahead to that moment. It's now our turn in our generation and our spheres of influence to point ahead from the manger to the cross. It's our call today. Jesus' life was begun in an unwelcoming manger, no room for him, no bed. Just a a roughshod manger with some scratchy straw. His life began that way and it was going to end on a cruel Roman cross. From beginning to end, the world did not receive him. And it's our call to, to point that fact out, to bring the cross into Christmas. Fourthly, <clears throat> let's ask the question, what, what if all that you're suffering and all the watching and waiting in your life is preparation for only one hour? I said at the beginning that God's timetable is in our timetable, Uh, God's idea of progress is different than our idea of progress. Mary had had no idea. She had no idea what what awaited her. And she had had plenty of, of blessing and honor, you know, and exuberance poured out over her to this point in the story. But she had no idea what great suffering lie in store for her as the earthly mother of Christ. And it reminds us that the way of following Jesus is full of indescribable peace and indescribable joy and and love and every good thing. But make no mistake, the way is narrow and the way is hard on the way to life, as Jesus said. The gate is wide and easy on the way to destruction, but the way is narrow and hard on the way to life. That's what Jesus said. We have our own crosses to bear on the way. And, And think of Anna in particular coming up upon Mary just after she's been told that a sword would pierce her soul. 
And, and then Anna, an old suffering servant, years and years of watching and waiting and worshiping, comes up to Mary and in, in joy gives thanks for this child again. Don't you think that maybe in that moment of hearing of some future suffering coming for her, which by the way, you know, if Simeon would have <laughs> said all that to me, I think I would have said, you know, most of that sounds pretty good, but that little bit about the sword piercing my soul, I don't know so much about that. But don't you think that, that this old, faithful, suffering Anna coming up at just that moment as a picture of an elderly lady who had, who had lived through some of the worst and yet was still praising God and was rejoicing in the baby was such a wonderful testimony to Mary in that moment. I wonder how often Anna wondered why, God? Why did my husband have to die after only seven years? Why do I have to suffer like this year after year after year after year after year? Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, maybe those 84 years were preparation for one hour. But oh, what an hour. Fifthly, and lastly, we'll close with this. <clears throat> While you still draw breath, you still have a purpose among us. <clears throat> Imagine there are some here today who wonder if their usefulness to God's kingdom has passed them by. We live in a culture that doesn't really honor old age like other cultures throughout the world have. Maybe there are people here who feel like all they're really doing these days is watching and waiting in faith. And I want to just say to you from, from this example from Scripture, listen, don't underestimate the value of a testimony of watching and waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Your watching and waiting for the return of Christ, be putting your hope in Christ to the end is having an impact. There's shrapnel from that hitting others that you may not even realize. There are many around you that cannot or will not or do not see Christ the way that they should. So let me encourage you to persevere in your watching and in your waiting and in your faith. May they see you faithfully watching. May they see you faithfully waiting till you draw your last breath. You know, the Apostle Peter said that countless prophets longed to see the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies that they were given. Yet it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And so generation after generation after generation of prophets were, were writing down these prophecies about the Messiah, and they were wondering, when is he going to come? Who's it going to be? What's it going to look like? And it was revealed to them, hey, it's not for you. This is for some future generation. 
Simeon and Anna, like so many, were straining to see our own day. And in fact, they did get to see the, the very beginning of it. And the Apostle Peter, he marvels at this. He marvels that people would even, on this side of Christmas, on this side of the cross, would, would look back and believe in Jesus, even though they'd never seen him. They would place their faith in him. And Peter marvels at that. You know, he got to see the Christ, to walk with him. And then he says in, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, in verse 13, he, he draws an application from, from this observation, this just sort of marveling at the fact that, hey, we are in the time of fulfillment. We are living in the days that prophets and angels longed to see. That's the day that we live in on this side of Christmas. And so Peter draws this conclusion. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put your hope fully in the grace to be given you at Jesus' next return. This Christmas, may we rejoice as we look back at his first coming and may we look forward in hope to the day when he will surely appear just like he said he would. You know, when I study about Jesus' second coming from, from God's word and I read those various passages, I have a lot of questions, a lot of unanswered questions. I wonder, how is this going to work out? What, is this, what exactly is this going to look like? But you know, one thing that is crystal clear to me from especially Jesus' own teachings on the topic of his second coming was that he intended us to watch and wait and to be full of faith and hope like Simeon and Anna. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, Lord, your, your faithfulness, your grace to us in sending your son into this world. Well, we do thank you that he was born to bleed for us. And we pray for those, Lord, who uh, maybe have yet to trust in you, God. May today be the day May they welcome Christ into their lives, Lord, that they might welcome peace, joy, and love, and, Lord, every good thing that you have to offer. Father, I pray for your, your sheep, for your faithful ones here, Lord, who are watching and waiting. Father, I pray that you would give them strength to persevere in their faith, Lord. Keep the evil one far from them. Strengthen them in their faith, Lord and bless their witness to their friends and family and neighbors this Christmas. Lord, may we be a good testimony not only here in this place, but especially when we leave this place and walk out those front doors, Lord, and interact with the world around us. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness for the times when we weren't like Simeon and Anna, where we weren't faithful, where we didn't believe. Father, help us with our unbelief. Help us to believe. Strengthen our faith. And Father, I thank you for Jesus who is the faithful one on our behalf. May he be exalted today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.